Uh, but let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation 22, the final chapter of the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter uh, 22. And uh, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study through this book, we come uh, this morning to Revelation 22, verse 1, and my goal uh, this morning is to cover uh, verses 1 through uh, 5, Um, and the title of the message is Life in the New Jerusalem, Life in the New uh, Jerusalem. You know, a number of years ago, uh, about a decade ago, I would imagine my wife and I visited um, Israel on a tour led by Charles Morris of Haven today, uh, along with a handful of others uh, from Cornerstone. Um, throughout the first day of that uh, 10-day tour, I, I knew that I should have been feeling powerful emotions as we visited various historic uh, places in Israel. For example, we were in Caesarea on that first day, and I remember standing in the very spot where the Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa and Festus, and it was an epic, amazing moment. But as I stood there in that spot uh, where Paul probably stood 2,000 years ago, All I wanted to do was to find a bed somewhere and go lay down because of the jet lag. But by the next day or two, I had kind of recovered and I felt really good and really got a lot out of the remaining days of the tour. But the highlight of the trip for me was when we first came upon the city of Jerusalem. As we neared the city, Uh, The tour bus that we were uh, riding in began playing over its speakers the song, The Holy City, uh, written by Frederick Weatherly. And right as the chorus of that song began to play, uh, the bus uh, came around a bend and the city of Jerusalem came into view. And it literally took my breath away. I had heard so much about the city of Jerusalem, all of my life, and finally I was there and able to see that great city with my own eyes. And shortly um, after that point, the bus uh, pulled into a parking lot, and I stood with others at a lookout spot. And as I looked down from that lookout spot upon the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem and had a clear view of the Temple Mount, and as I looked upon the Mount of Olives that Jesus actually walked on while walking down into the city of Jerusalem on numerous occasions, I, I broke down and I wept. I was so overwhelmed. And I had other emotional moments on that wonderful tour of Israel, but that moment looking over The city of Jerusalem was the most powerful moment for me. I was overwhelmed by the sheer history of the place and by the amazing things that still lie in in its future. And given my experience of visiting Jerusalem 
the old Jerusalem for the very first time, I can only imagine how moved I'm going to be and how moved you're going to be when we arrive and look upon the city of the new Jerusalem for the very first time. It's going to be amazing. Actually, the Apostle John got to see this city already, right? And he has been our tour guide over the last couple of Sundays, showing us this city of the new Jerusalem. We've seen how he was taken in the spirit to a lookout spot, to a great and a high mountain. And from that vantage point, he was able to view the new Jerusalem and to write down what he saw for our benefit. And last week, we got to see much about the impressive city of the New Jerusalem as we looked at it through his eyes, a city that is 1,380 miles long by 1,380 miles wide by 1,380 miles high. We saw that this city is made of pure gold and has foundation stones featuring all the colors of the rainbow. We saw how this is a city inhabited by God and by the Lamb, who are its temple and its light. And we saw how this city features three pearl gates on each side, which beckons its inhabitants to adventure forth onto the new earth, and which always lets them know that they are welcome upon their return. We saw that the nations and the kings of the earth will walk by the light of this amazing city and be bringing their glory into it. These are things that we have already learned about the New Jerusalem last week and even in the week before, but there's more to learn in our passage uh, today, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to work through these five verses uh, this morning And we're going to observe seven more descriptions, seven descriptions of what life will be like in the new Jerusalem, seven descriptions of life in the new Jerusalem. Number one, if you have your notes with you, you can fill in the blank. A river of the water of life will issue from God's throne, a river of the water of life will issue from God's throne. You know, every city has a water source that it depends upon for its sustenance, and the New Jerusalem will be no different. Observe what John says in verse 1 and in the very first part of verse 2. Speaking of the angel who is guiding him on this tour, John says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. As you can see from the language here, this is not just any river. This is a river containing the water of life. We're told here that this river is clear as crystal. The Greek word translated clear Here is the word lampros, lampros, where we get our word lamp from. This word means bright, which is why the English Standard Version 
And Young's literal translation translates the expression to say bright as crystal. Imagine how bright this sparkling river will be with the glory of God reflecting off of it in every direction. Where will this river come from? John tells us in verse 1 that this river is coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Literally, it is continuously coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The fact that this is a river means that it is flowing water. It's not a lake. It is a river of flowing water. The fact that this river is continuously issuing forth from the throne means that water will incessantly flow from the throne and will never run out for all of eternity. I would imagine that this river will flow from the throne as one river and then eventually break up into numerous tributaries and streams as it winds its way through the entirety of the city of the new Jerusalem, bringing lush vegetation and nourishment and refreshment wherever it goes. And everyone will know down to the tiniest stream where it originated from the throne of God and the Lamb. By the way, notice how the throne is spoken of here in verse 1 as the throne singular of God and of the Lamb. These are not two thrones that are here, but one throne that God the Father and Jesus Christ rule from together. And not only will they rule, but from both of them, from both of them will flow the river of the water of life in endless supply. Imagine the Samaritan woman in the New Jerusalem and beholding Christ upon this throne, seeing Jesus on this throne with his Father and seeing this river of the water of life flowing incessantly from this throne. I imagine her just being amazed by that and pointing to Jesus and saying, he once asked me for a drink. Can you believe it? And she'll think back on Jesus' words to her in John 4, verse 10, when he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And now, this Samaritan woman will be thinking, yeah, there's a whole river of the water of life that is flowing from his throne, bringing refreshment to me and to everyone in this city forever. And I just can't get over the fact that he once asked me for a drink. In the New American Standard Bible and the English Standard Version and the New International Version translations, this sentence that begins in verse 1 uh, ends with the first few words of verse 2 where it says, in the middle of its street, describing the fact that the river flows through the full length of the golden street that runs from the throne of God through 
the new Jerusalem. So this river uh, is through the street down the middle of this golden fairway. In ancient Rome, it was not unthinkable to have water running along a street, but such water was usually sewage. But here the water is clear as crystal and wonderfully drinkable. There will be no thirsty travelers on these golden streets, for they will have all the water of life that they could ever wish to drink. Not only will we, the inhabitants of the city, have plenty of this life-giving water to drink from this river of the water of life, but we'll have plenty to eat as well. This leads us to the next description of what life will be like for us in the new Jerusalem. Number two, the tree of life will bear new fruit every month. The tree of life will bear new fruit every month. Observe what John says in verse 2. He says, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is actually, guys, the first physical appearance of the tree of life in the Bible since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were driven from the garden of Eden after they had sinned. God drove them from the garden of Eden and positioned a flaming sword and the cherubim at its entrance to keep Adam and Eve from ever going back into the garden and eating from the tree of life and thus live forever in their state of sin. God wanted to prevent that. But here in the New Jerusalem, with 12 gates that are open all the time, is the tree of life. This tree of life is clearly positioned in this spot, not just to be admired for its beauty, but in order that its fruit might be eaten and enjoyed. We know this because of the promise that Jesus makes to the church of Ephesus, and you can write down this reference, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, when Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, this is that tree of life that the overcomers can eat from, which means that now God doesn't mind the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem living forever because their sin has been removed and they are in a state of confirmed righteousness. Thankfully, we're told some helpful things about this tree, uh, the first of which is its location. We're told here in verse 2 that this tree of life is on either side of the river, a description that has mystified commentators for centuries. How can a single tree be on both sides of a river? And I got to tell you, I don't know. But this is what John sees. It's likely, perhaps, that this tree sprouts up from both sides of the river in a way that looks like multiple trees, yet they are connected at the root. 
which originates in the riverbed of the river of the water of life. And from John's language here, you get the impression that this will be a sprawling tree, endlessly running along both sides of the river, but which will look from one perspective as a veritable forest, but it's one tree. As for the fruit of this tree of life, John tells us that this tree will be bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. This means that this tree of life will never go dormant ever for all of eternity. In our world today, fruit trees produce fruit during a particular time of the year, and then you have to wait until the following year for them to produce another season of fruit. But the tree of life in the New Jerusalem will never go dormant. It will produce a particular kind of fruit one month, and then another kind of fruit the following month, and so forth. Every month will leave the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem with a new harvest of a whole new variety of fruit from the tree of life that has produced it. And by the way, it's just worth noting here, John's reference here in verse 2 to every month, which at the very least indicates that in the New Jerusalem, there will be a sense in which the passage of time is marked by 12-month periods. And I'll leave you to ponder that. Also, from the language of the text, we observe that it's not just the fruit of this tree that is valuable, but John tells us, look what the text says, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The Greek word translated healing is the word therapeia, therapeia, from which we get our word therapy. This word can speak of healing for maladies or injuries, but this word can also speak of simply the nourishing of good health. So John's language here doesn't have to mean that the nations in the eternal state are being painfully injured and they need therapy in order to recover from their injuries. John could simply be saying that even the leaves of the tree of life will be good for maintaining and nourishing good health of the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem as peoples of every tribe and tongue and nation are all united in partaking of and receiving the health benefits of the tree of life, partaking of its fruit and even benefiting from the health benefits of its leaves. What John says here in verses 1 and 2 makes us think a little bit about how we're going to live forever and sustain ourselves in the eternal state. A question for you to think about, will we just automatically live forever in the eternal state, or will we still be dependent creatures who need to sustain ourselves by drinking of the water of life and eating of the tree of life uh, forever. Think about how Adam and Eve 
would have lived forever if they had never sinned. Yeah, they would have lived forever, but they would have needed, no doubt, to partake of God's provision in order to live on forever and ever. In his book on heaven, Randy Alcorn suggests that it's possible that the same thing will be true for us in the new Jerusalem. We will live forever because God continuously provides us with the water of life and the fruit from the tree of life and the healthful benefits of the leaves from the tree of life to sustain our good health forever and ever. And if this is the case, then the river of the water of life and the fruit from the tree of life will not just be some nicety that we really don't need. No, our glorified physical well-being will depend upon this water of life and the tree of life. We will have appetites in the afterlife and the river of the water of life and the fruit of the tree of life will be a perfect match for that appetite that we will have and we will be sustained in our eternal life by partaking of this provision that God will incessantly be making for us. The news gets even better in verse 3, which leads us to the next description of what life will be like for us in the new Jerusalem, which involves something that will not be in the new Jerusalem. As I said last week, after all, not every city can have everything. And there is something missing in the new Jerusalem. Number three, there will be no more curse. There will be no more curse. Observe what John says in verse 3. There will no longer be any curse. This is a loaded statement if there ever was one. Think about the curses that are identified in Genesis chapter 3 that came about as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God speaks to Eve and he literally says, I will surely multiply your pain. In conception, in pain, you shall bring forth children. Essentially, what God is saying to Eve is this. Here's a paraphrase. I will multiply your pain with regard to the biological processes that make conception and childbirth possible. As you know, ladies, that speaks of more than just the pains of childbirth, right? And John is saying here that in the New Jerusalem, there will be no such pains. And all God's women said, amen. Also, part of how the curse affected Adam and Eve was that it created conflict, a striving for control in the relationship. But John is saying that there will be no such conflict in our relationships in the New Jerusalem because the curse is removed. Another curse that came upon mankind as a result of sin is the curse of aging and death. And John is saying that there will be no such thing. 
in the new Jerusalem. Not only will there be no death, but there will be none of the ravages of aging that many of us in this room experience. I'll tell you, the older I get, um, it's like every day you wake up and you just take measure of what's been lost. As you see, like we're not waiting for death to visit us in a future day. Death visits us every day and kills us one cell at a time, one hair follicle at a time, little by little until the very end. But there will be none of the ravages of aging or death in the new Jerusalem. Part of the curse was that Adam would work by the sweat of his brow in order to eke out a living from the earth in its fallen state, but John is telling us that there will be no such frustrating labor in the new Jerusalem. Yes, there will be work to do because God gave Adam work to do even before the fall. Work is not a part of the curse, but this work will not be toilsome and frustrating, and we won't have to work by the sweat of our brow to eke out a living in the New Jerusalem. Part of the curse was that the earth would uh, yield up its bounty more reluctantly and yield thorns and thistles instead. But in the New Jerusalem and on the new earth, the earth will happily yield up its bounty, and there will be no thorns and thistles. The other part of the curse is simply sin itself, and we all know this. But John is telling us here that there will be no more sin. There will be no sin around us to deal with. There will be no more sinful tendencies within us that we will have to fight against in the new Jerusalem. There will be no temptations in the new Jerusalem. We will always want to do what is right all the time. We will always want to do the loving thing. And so will everyone else around us. In the new Jerusalem, everyone will be in a state of confirmed righteousness. And no one will ever wrong you again or cause you any pain. Think about, guys, everything that is wrong with our world today because of sin and its curse. And then realize there will be no such thing in the eternal state for believers in the New Jerusalem. My wife and I, just a few weeks ago, we were walking near our neighborhood, um, and we walked through an office complex that's pretty close to our house, and we noticed that around every air conditioner unit was a cage that was locked to protect the air conditioning units from being stolen. It was kind of an eyesore to see those cages And we both started talking about that and expressed sadness that companies have to go through all of this trouble just to keep people from stealing their air conditioning units. Think about the fact that we all put locks on our doors and have passwords for our online accounts. 
Think about the money we spend on security systems and security cameras and ring doorbells. Think about how much we pay in auto and home insurance in case there is an accident. Think about how it is that everything you purchase or buy from a store, part of the price of that item is to cover costs for litigation and theft, which is expected in the normal course of doing business. And we pay for that in every item that we purchased. And part of the cost of your auto insurance covers the cost of fraudulent claims that people get by with. Think about how much of the taxes that you pay that go toward sustaining a military or a police force or federal and local prisons or government programs that are needed due to the breakdown of the family unit. None of these things will exist or be necessary in the new Jerusalem because God's righteous rule will be there and everyone will abide by his will perfectly and happily, which actually leads us to the fourth description of what life will be like for us in the new Jerusalem. Number four, God's throne will be in the city and its inhabitants will serve him. God's throne will be in the city and its inhabitants will serve him. I absolutely love what John says at the end of verse 3 because it's a total downer for people who say that they want to go to heaven, but they don't love God and they don't delight in his rule. Observe what John says in verse 3. He says, And the throne of God, describing the new Jerusalem, he says, And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants, literally his slaves, will serve him. How's that for a description of heaven? How's that for a description of the new Jerusalem? If you think you might want to go to paradise when you die, you should think about what John says right here and reconsider. For the unredeemed, this description that John has just given us is not good news. But for the redeemed to love God, this is very good news. For the redeemed, part of what will make the new Jerusalem such an awesome place is that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. They wouldn't want to be there if the throne of God and the Lamb was not also there. The fact that the throne of God will be in the new Jerusalem indicates that God will be the ruler of this city together with the Lamb who died for the sins of those he redeemed and for the redeemed, it is the presence of God and the Lamb and them seated upon this throne and ruling from this throne that makes heaven heaven. How will the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem respond to God and the Lamb who rule from the throne? John says in verse 3, and his bondservants, literally, and his slaves will serve him. Every citizen 
in the new Jerusalem will happily view themselves as slaves of God and slaves of Jesus Christ, whose will is swallowed up in the will of the triune God. In fact, John says here his bondservants or his slaves will serve him. This word translated serve here is a word that often means to render the service of worship. And we see this word in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. This was the word that was used to speak of the ministry of priests in the temple, which is why some commentators take this word to indicate that everyone in the New Jerusalem will function as a priest of God who lives inside of this holy of holies called the New Jerusalem. This verb can speak of anything that a person does in the way of fulfilling any assignment or task that God gives to them and anything that a person does in the way of worshiping God and praising him and helping others to do the same. What John's wording here makes clear is that in the New Jerusalem, this place The new Jerusalem will be a place where the rule of God prevails in unhindered fullness and where every inhabitant happily views himself or herself as God's slave and they happily render service, the service of worship to him. This will actually be their greatest happiness and joy. You see, guys, heaven is heaven, not because when you get there, you get to do whatever you privately please. That's not what heaven is. Heaven, or the New Jerusalem, paradise, is the place where you live in community with others, in orbiting around God and being satisfied in Him and by Him, and being loved by him in unhindered fullness. Heaven is the place where your will becomes perfectly aligned with God's will, and your greatest pleasure is to do as he pleases. It is while orbiting God and serving him in this way that you discover the truest and freest version of yourself. So think carefully about this. If serving God is what heaven is all about, and you are not interested in serving him here, then why would you want to go to the New Jerusalem in the afterlife? It's a question for you to ponder. There's still, we'll come back to this at the end, but there's another description that John provides for us of life in the New Jerusalem. Number five, the city's inhabitants will see God's face and bear his name. The city's inhabitants will see God's face and bear his name. Speaking of these inhabitant slaves, of this city who serve and worship God. Observe what John says in verse 4. He says, they will see 
his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Commenting on this first statement in verse 4, the commentator John Phillips says, and I love this, he says, here is the climax of everything. John has learned well from his master to save his best wine until the last, for this is heaven's crowning joy. In fact, guys, you take away everything else about the new Jerusalem and give the inhabitants of this city only this one thing, and they will be eternally happy to simply behold the face of God. When my kids were young, uh, sometimes I would jokingly give them a punishment and say to them, because of what you have done, you are not allowed to look directly upon my countenance for the rest of the day. And my kids would respond by saying, no, Dad, any punishment but that. Um, But actually, they would have loved that punishment to not have to look upon me. But with God, it really is a sad thing that because of sin, we're not able right now to see his face now as we will then. We lost that privilege in the fall. And right now, no one can see the face of God and live. When Saul of Tarsus saw a little something of Christ's glory on the road to Damascus, he was left blinded from that encounter and needed a miracle to restore his sight. In Exodus 33, Moses asked God for the privilege of seeing God's glory, and God allowed him to see something of his glory But God emphatically said to Moses, and I quote, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. In Genesis 32, Jacob came about as close as anyone to seeing the face of God, but it involved an all-night wrestling match, which left Jacob with a dislocated hip and limping for the rest of his life. Grateful to have survived the ordeal. When Isaiah saw the Lord upon his throne in Isaiah 6, he was left undone by what he saw and was pronouncing woe upon himself. But here in the New Jerusalem, the inhabitants of the city will not only see the face of God, but they will thrive in the experience of seeing his face. Evidently, God is going to make the inhabitants of the city physically able to withstand the sight of him and actually be benefited by the sight of him. The ability to see the face of God is heaven's greatest privilege And that ought to leave you and I speechless with gratefulness. And so looking forward to this moment when we will have the privilege of beholding the face of God. Think about it. As Leon Morris says, to see the face of God was denied to Moses. But it is the privilege of all of God's servants in the holy city. What God said no to to Moses He's going to say yes to you and to Moses in the new Jerusalem. This privilege will be yours. Along those lines in verse 4, 
John speaks of the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem and says that God's name will be on their foreheads. Such an expression speaks of God's ownership of us, our allegiance to him, his assumption of total responsibility to care for us. But his name on our foreheads represents something else also. The name of God, as we all know, represents his character. And we're told that we will bear the imprint of his character on our countenance, a fact which is no doubt connected to our ability to see his face. As Robert Mounts, the commentator, says, the faces of those who have experienced the beatific vision, the happiness-inducing vision of beholding the face of God will reflect the unmistakable likeness of their heavenly Father. During the tribulation period, as you'll recall, as we've gone through Revelation, the followers of the beast will wear the mark of the beast on their right hand or on their foreheads, and they will become beast-like in their character. Yet here in the New Jerusalem, everyone will bear the name of God on their foreheads and happily bear his beautiful resemblance. There's yet another description of what life will be like for us in the New Jerusalem. Number six, the city's inhabitants will be perpetually illumined by God. The city's inhabitants will be perpetually illumined by God. In verse five, John says, and there will no longer be any night, and they, the inhabitants of the city, will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. At no point will you ever need a flashlight in the New Jerusalem. You will never need to turn on a light in a room or light a candle in order to read a book or to see or experience anything. When you go outside, you will not need the light of the sun. And the reason is, as John says, because the Lord God will illumine them. Everywhere you look, everywhere you go, the Lord God will illumine what you are looking at and illumine where you are going. You will see everything in his light. And notice, guys, the precise wording of this statement in verse 5, wherein John says, because the Lord God will illumine them. Literally, this reads, because the Lord God will shine upon them. In giving this promise, John is not merely saying that God will illumine your path or whatever it is that you wish to look at in the New Jerusalem, but that the Lord God will illumine you and make you fully visible to yourself and to others who wish to see you. Whenever anyone in the New Jerusalem looks upon you, they will see you in God's good light. And trust me, you're going to like how you look in his light. And it won't just be a light that shines upon you, but a light that makes you luminescent as well. 
And they that be wise, Daniel says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness will shine as the stars forever and ever. There's one final description about what life will be like in the New Jerusalem, which we'll look at briefly here. Number seven, the city's inhabitants will reign forever and ever. The city's inhabitants will reign forever and ever. Observe the final thing John says about the inhabitants of this city in verse 5. He says, and they will reign forever and ever. If John had said at the end of verse 5, and they will live forever and ever, that would have been good enough, right? But instead, John says, and they will reign forever and ever. In other words, the inhabitants of this city will live forever in a lifestyle that is characterized by nothing short of reigning Actually, we can characterize John's promise here in this way. He's saying, and they will live as kings forever and ever. This kind of language is so interesting to me because earlier John referred to the inhabitants of this city as God's slaves. Yet here we see that these slaves of God will live as kings We will serve as God's slaves, and he will see to it that we reign as kings. And this ought to be so instructive for us. Some people tend to think that submission to God is a life of slavery. But we learn in this passage that slavery to God amounts to a life of reigning as king. It's when we let go of our own autonomy and surrender to God that we find ourselves elevated to a life of reigning as kings. We discover that submission to God is the greatest exaltation. Slavery to him is the greatest Freedom and surrender to him results in a life of reigning beyond anything that we could have imagined. Living for God's glory results in us being glorified beyond anything we could have ever imagined. You might say, you know, honestly, Pastor Milton, I I don't like all this talk about being God's slave and slaves in the new Jerusalem But you know what, my friend? Everyone's a slave. Everybody, including you, is a slave. The only question is, whose slave are you? You say, I'm nobody's slave. I do what I want to (laughs) do. Okay. That means you're a slave of you. And what have you done to earn that right to be your own master? The truth is that you are in bondage even now and you don't even realize it. You are a slave to your own lusts, which are relentless and cruel masters, which never leave you in peace. And deep down, you know this is true. 
But slavery, on the other hand, to an all-wise God who created you and who loves you and is willing to redeem you through the blood of his Son and who can satisfy you and give you a life of reigning for all of eternity, that's freedom and power and glory forever. And this will be the experience of the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem. In fact, notice how long the inhabitants of the city will live this life of reigning as king. John says they will reign forever and ever. We who serve God will reign, and we won't just reign, but we will reign forever, and we won't just reign forever, but forever and ever literally for ages and ages. That's how long our reign will be with God in the New Jerusalem. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is John's closing descriptions of the New Jerusalem that we see in verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 22, giving us an idea of what life in this city is going to be like Back in 2012, uh, Randy Alcorn wrote an article for Ligonier Ministries, and the article was on the topic of heavenly-mindedness. And in that article, he tells about a pastor of a church that came to him one day and said these words to him. He said to Randy Alcorn, quote, "'Whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed.'" I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. And Randy Alcorn asked him why. And this pastor said, I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. It's all so terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. Guys, that was a pastor who spoke those words to Randy Alcorn, a pastor who obviously never studied Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 that we're looking at today. The picture we see in our passage today is anything but boring, but one full of life and nourishment, eternal satisfaction and worship and relationship, beholding the face of God, serving him and reigning forever and ever. And what's really cool is that you don't have to wait until you get to the New Jerusalem before you start doing many of these things. In fact, I'm convinced that part of the reason that God gives you this glimpse of life in the New Jerusalem is not merely so that you can right now know or be encouraged with an understanding of what life will be like then in the New Jerusalem. But I think God reveals what he reveals in these verses so that you might get some clues as to how you can start rehearsing now for how you will live then. In fact, let me give you, just in closing, five things that you can be doing right now in preparation for what you will be doing in the New Jerusalem First of all, feast, feast. In the New Jerusalem, God gives you a river 
of the water of life and a tree of life to feast upon. And even now, God gives you the bounty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the food of his word, and he gives you his son to feast upon every day. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, God commands you literally to be continuously being filled by the Spirit with all the blessings that belong to you in Christ. God's plan for you, even right now, is that you live in fullness, that you experience His fullness every day by feasting upon Him. So live every day feasting on God's word and feasting upon Christ. Feasting is what you're going to do in the new Jerusalem, so get started now. Secondly, behold God. Be beholding God and bearing his likeness. We see in our passage this morning that in the new Jerusalem, we're going to be able to see the face of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John tells us that we're going to be like Jesus. Why? For we will see him as he is. It is the sight of him that will transform us to be like him. That's how powerful the sight of God will be. But the Bible teaches us that we can actually begin beholding the glory of the Lord even now in a way that's transforming us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are at the present time continuously being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So begin gazing at God even now. As you read his word and commune with him in prayer and behold Christ in the gospel, keep looking to Christ as your righteousness and as the Lord of your salvation. And as you look to him, you will find yourself undergoing a transformation into the very image of the Christ that you are beholding from one level of glory to another. Number three, thirdly, we learn... Let me just say it this way, serve and worship God. Serve and worship God. We learn in our passage today that in the New Jerusalem, God's slaves, the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem, will serve him. Well, you don't have to wait until you get to the New Jerusalem to serve and worship God. You can be motivated right now by the mercies of God to present yourself to God as a living and a holy sacrifice, ready to do his will, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worshiping and serving God is what you will do in the new Jerusalem. So be doing this now. Make your day today and tomorrow all about serving God and doing his will, and you will find that his will is good and acceptable and perfect far better than your own private will could ever have been. A fourth thing that you can do right now in preparation for life in the New Jerusalem is to walk in God's light. Walk in God's light. 
We learn in our passage today that in the New Jerusalem, we're never going to lack for light because God himself will be our light and he will illumine us. Well, God gives us light even now. Jesus speaks of himself and says, I am the light of the world. And John, the apostle, tells us that when we walk with him, we're walking in the light. We're told in the Bible that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so we can open our Bibles and receive the light that we need to make our way through this darkened world. And as we walk in the light that God gives to us, we can become luminescent ourselves and can shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation in which we live. And then fifthly and lastly, rain. Rain. In the New Jerusalem, we will reign forever and ever, but we don't have to wait until then to live a reigning lifestyle even now. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. That's not just a statement that Paul makes about our future in heaven, but also about our present here on earth. If you have received, having believed in Jesus, the abundance of God's grace through Christ, and if you have received the gift of justification and righteousness through Christ, then you can live today a lifestyle of reigning. You can live as a king out of the treasury of what God has given to you in Christ, living each day as the royal son or daughter of God that you are. My point in reviewing these five things is to remind you that when you get to the New Jerusalem, you're not just going to start doing these things. What we will do there will merely be a continuation of doing what God calls us to be doing here even now and provides for us to be doing here and now. Only there we will be able to do these things in unhindered fullness. Amen? So the best thing you can do now is to give yourself to doing the very things that you're going to be doing in the New Jerusalem. Feasting, beholding God and bearing his name wherever you go, serving and worshiping God, walking in his light, and living as the royalty that you are, and treating your brothers and sisters as the royal sons and daughters of God that they are. And if you're here this morning and you've never believed in this amazing Savior, Jesus Christ, who provides his people with all of these blessings, the best thing that you can do right now to serve your eternal interest is to repent of your sins and to turn to Jesus and to look to him as your Lord and as your Savior, and to call upon His name to save you. Christ came into this world and died on the cross and shed His blood to give you atonement for your sins so that your sins can be cleansed, 
forgiven, washed away, so that you, if you believe in him, can live eternally in a sinless state and feast sumptuously on the tree of life. If you do call upon his name this morning, I can assure you on the authority of God's word that Jesus will be delighted to save you. Not only in this moment, but then he will be delighted to take you to be with him in some future day that you might then reign with him forever and ever. And I just, I can't imagine saying no to that blessing. Let's pray together and ask God to have his way in our hearts. Lord, we are benefited in so many ways as the the rays of light that shine from these verses fall upon us. We are thankful that there is such a place as the New Jerusalem that meets the descriptions that we find in Revelation 21 and these verses in chapter 22. We thank you for this glimpse of what our life will be like and what we're going to be doing in the new Jerusalem for all of eternity. And as we look at those specific things, Lord, they're all things that you provide for us to be doing now. May our life now be such that it's just a natural continuum. Here's what we do here, though we stumble and fall and rely upon your grace and forgiveness, but, but we're seeking to grow in doing these very things that in the New Jerusalem we will do perfectly for all of eternity. I confess to you, Lord, that there have been times this past week when, though I would have never said this out loud, I have believed that submission to you is something less than ultimate freedom and chose sin over the freedom of doing your good will. And I thank you for the grace and the forgiveness that you provide for those that look to you. But Lord, I'm asking that you would help me as a man to believe the very words that I've preached today. Help all of us to know the ultimate exaltation that comes from bowing before you and surrendering to your good will. And that when we humble ourselves before you, you exalt us far higher than any exaltation we could have ever accomplished for ourselves. If there's any here today, Lord, that have never experienced your grace, your forgiveness. I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that they would come to know the goodness and the beauty, the tenderness and the compassions 
of Jesus Christ, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And I ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,